This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Dr. Marilyn Ford-Gilbo is the Women's Health Research Chair in Rural Health at Western University. She's a distinguished university professor at the Arthur Labatt Family School of Nursing, and she joins us now on London Live. Dr. Ford-Gilbo, can you describe what this tool is? So um, in some of the research that we've been doing, we developed a a tool that's actually an interactive website that women can come in and use. And um, what this uh, research website has done is it's uh, given women a chance to um, answer some questions about uh, their personal situations, uh, get some information about their risk of harm, um, and get some uh, suggestions or ideas based on the way they answer those questions about things that they can do to deal with the violence, but also deal with some of the other, you know, negative things that are happening in their lives because of violence. So and thinking about, for example, health problems and, and uh, needing housing and all the things that come with the violence. And I guess we've got to picture how this tool would be so effective. The idea that it's very difficult to talk about these things, and we've heard that a number of times. It's sometimes very difficult to say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to leave. That's very tough. It's difficult to ask for advice in being able to kind of put down information to see what someone's personal situation might be like at the end of, of what this particular tool provides for them. What does that mean for women who are in these situations? Yeah, I think what the, what the tool does, what we understand from the research in part, is it, it gives women a, a safe private space for them to actually begin to think about their situation and what they see as important and what some of the options might be, even before some of them might be willing to reach out for assistance um, to a service agency. And the other thing that it does is that in the suggestions that are given to the women, it also gives all kinds of um, suggestions for community services and resources that they can contact and gives them information about what they can expect. So if you can think, for example, that even in the example of a shelter, you know, um, often women might think that the only way to get help from a shelter is to go and stay at a shelter. But, of course, we know that shelters provide so much more than that. And uh, so part of what this does is give them give some information to help women make informed decisions about what they want to do. We're talking with Dr. Marilyn Ford-Gilbo, Western's Women's Health Research Chair in Rural Health, and we're talking about I Can Plan for Safety, which is a tool, an online tool that can be used to gain all of the information that Dr. Ford-Gilbo has been describing for us. What kind of reaction are you getting from people who have made use of it? Yeah, so again, so far we've only tested this in a research study, but the next phase actually is uh, we will be actually putting out a public version of this as an app this summer. Um, So I can tell you in the research study, uh, women have had all kinds of reactions to it, but um, many of the women talk about how um, it has given them more confidence. It's allowed them to kind of... uh, use it over and over again to monitor their own situation so they can look at the risk in their situation and to get a sense of uh, whether that's increasing or decreasing, um, to get information about things that they hadn't really thought about. Um, so the women overall have been very positive about uh, 
about the tool and particularly that it gives them control. So, you know, they're in control of what they do with that information. Knowledge is power, right, in a lot of ways. And um, it's, it's helping women make informed decisions that are the decisions that they are comfortable with. And for women in the study, how important would it be to feel control over something again, given what they're going um, through? Oh, yeah, well, hugely, hugely important, right? Because the violence really often robs the women of control. And so uh, a really important part of beginning to move on is to be able to regain that control in some way. And um, this is very much uh, part of what uh, the tool is designed to do is to not make assumptions about what women might want to do or that there's only one path forward, but there are many, many paths and that the woman really has to decide for herself what that is. Dr. Ford Gilbo, when should people be looking for this in a public form? Is there a, an absolute timeline at the moment? Not an absolute, although we're, we're working on the prototype right now for the app. And the app will be called My Plan Canada. It's, um, it is a, uh, a collaboration with uh, um, teams in other countries. So there is a My Plan app already available for the U.S., although this will be the next iteration of it. So probably this summer, I would say toward uh, the end of summer. Thanks so much for the time this afternoon. You're welcome. Joining us right now is Dr. Shanna Meyer, who is going to help us understand this. And maybe we start there, Dr. Meyer. You're a perfect person to outline why someone doesn't just get up and go. There's so many reasons why women just can't up and leave or disappear. And there's all different layers of the relationship that they may have been in with their assailant or the abuser. It could be someone that they work with. It could be someone that is in a supervisory position at work, in a career. It could be someone that's not in a supervisory position. So if it's work-related, that person may not just be able to get up and leave the job or terminate the position. If they're in school with the person, if they're on a college campus with them, um, it's just this idea that it's simply that they can terminate any sort of contact with the person it is really kind of ridiculous um, in a lot of situations just because of the nuances of relationships. It could be a intimate partner. It could be someone that they're married to, someone that they're in a legal relationship with, someone that they have children with. So I think a lot of times even professional relationships, we look at that, but we don't look at personal relationships. Just because someone terminates a relationship and, and as you're saying, disappears or leaves, if they have children with the person, it does not necessarily mean that they could just leave with their children, and their children would never see the assailant again. So it's a really, really complex, very, very complex. And I think the idea that abusers um, will just let the, the victim leave or their survivor leave is also something that is is not really true as well. Um, it's, it's a lot harder than it seems and a lot harder than society makes it out to be. Dr. Meyer, we now have supports in place and have had for some time. When you look at the supports that are available, how do you feel they are working out? I think that the support is one good thing, but I think one of the bigger issues is even with that support, there's so much victim blame and there's so much societal blame. So even if the survivor is getting services that he or she needs, 
you still have all of the negative connotations and all of the stigma and all of the victim blaming and not even just straight victim blaming, but also victim questioning. You know, why didn't, okay, great. You left now. Why didn't you leave earlier? Um, but to go back to your original question, I don't know how much support is enough. I mean, because you've got housing issues, you've got financial issues, you've got emotional issues. So it's a really hard question to answer how much is, is enough to actually help the survivor. We're talking with Dr. Shana Meyer from Widener University in Chester, Pennsylvania, and we're talking about some of the challenges that exist if someone's in an abusive relationship and is looking to get out, or someone is in not even an abusive relationship, but an abusive situation, whether it be at work or, Dr. Meyer pointed out, on a university campus where it's someone that you may see a, a whole lot more casually than what might be an intimate relationship. So... If we take some of these in in kind of individual spots, if it is a workplace, is there anything that you see as being useful in taking that first step to making a change? I think for places of employment, there needs to be firm guidelines and an employee handbook of what's acceptable. Um, I think that there absolutely needs a chain of command. Of, of how it gets reported, and that becomes even more problematic, obviously, when the person who is the assailant or the perpetrator or the one that is engaging the, in the abuse or the harassment is in a supervisory position. So I think firm guidelines is one answer. I don't think that's the answer, though, because even with this in place, it doesn't always work the way that it's supposed to work. Right. And if you're looking at it, is any job worth staying in if you're experiencing things like this that you're taking home at the end of the day or or that that basically is affecting your entire life? I can't answer that because <laughs> I think every single situation is very, very unique. Um, and I think that even that question looks at, it, it, it may not be a job, it may be a career, it may be someone that has moved up, you know, the ladder, so to speak, for years and years. So some jobs might be easy to leave. And some jobs, I probably can answer that with a quick, no, it's not worth it. But I can't answer that for all individuals or or all positions. If it is a career that they have worked on their entire life, um, and it's also the question of maybe why, we should maybe ask the survivor why they're leaving or why they should leave, but instead ask what the ramification should be for the perpetrator. Sure. Well said. Now, if we look at at other situations where you would offer advice, what advice do you tend to to try to give to somebody who is in a a situation where they feel, you know, almost almost captive? I really hesitate to do that for all for all levels, because I don't think that there's a lot that that individuals can do. What I am a very firm proponent of is is bystander education. I think it's much more helpful when other individuals maybe in the institution, whether it's the college atmosphere or the workplace, see something to speak up. Because I think that if we have one voice alone is not enough, one accusation alone is not enough, but other people speaking up, I think that that is one thing that would help. Gotcha. And so then are we left at, at looking at signs that bystanders should be reading? Yes, yes, and just the lack of ramifications for them if they speak up, because that's obviously the fear as well. 
you know, I may want to help the survivor. I may want to help the person that is being a victim of the abuse or the harassment, but I might not want to speak up because I certainly don't want my job in jeopardy. So I think kind of making it more of a process as best as we can, that there is support for bystanders who stand up and support survivors and, and say something. Because, you know, as we see with some of the more well-known cases, it, it oftentimes is not just one individual. But it often takes that, right, but it often takes that one individual to come forward for others to say, you know what, now I can come forward too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Meyer, we really appreciate your time today. Anything else that you'd like to add? No, thank you very much. I appreciate the call and I appreciate speaking with you today. As we continue to cover COVID-19 and the new coronavirus, I want to look at this from a pet perspective because there was a story about a dog testing positive for the new coronavirus. Not in Canada, but yes, a dog. And you think, well, how? What do you mean a dog? You know, this is a human virus. It's a concern for humans. No, no, a dog. So when it comes to viruses, how many do wind up getting passed back and forth between humans and animals? Can't be that much. We had a chance late yesterday to talk with Dr. Scott Weiss from the Ontario Veterinary College and to highlight what exactly is going on when you hear of a a pet being diagnosed with something like this or a dog being diagnosed with something like this that typically has become a great concern for humans. And just how much jumping does go back and forth. We asked Dr. Weiss how the day was going yesterday. Oh, pretty good. How about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, A lot of people are going to head home at the end of today, and they're going to be welcomed at the door by a dog, or as they walk deeper into the house, maybe they run into a cat, maybe they don't. They don't usually come running to the door. And there are certainly questions being asked about pets and COVID-19, the new coronavirus, as to whether or not they could contract it. Do we know anything specific about that yet? Well, we don't know a lot yet. It's still a very new virus. Uh, what we do know is there's a dog in Hong Kong that's tested positive, and it's done that over a few days now, so it looks like it's actually infected. It's healthy. It didn't get sick from the virus, but it looks like its infected owner passed the virus on to him. Whether that means much in the big context, whether the dog could spread it further or whether this is a, a rare thing, we still don't know. And so you mentioned the dog didn't get sick. Is it possible for an animal to have a virus and just be a carrier? It, it's possible, just like with us. So p- people that expose, get exposed to influenza or the viruses that cause the cold or the virus that causes COVID-19, some of them can be healthy but shedding the virus. So a lot of the times when we encounter viruses or bacteria that can cause disease, they don't because we're healthy and we have a good immune system. Now, what we're concerned about with some, some animals is whether they can be healthy and then shed the virus and infect other animals and other people. And we don't know that yet. This dog had what they reported as a very low level or it was a weak positive. So there probably wasn't a lot of virus there. So it's possible it just had a mild infection and that's going to disappear on its own and it's going to be inconsequential, but we need to follow it to see whether there might be any risk. 
When we look at transmitting viruses, a lot of times we might think of a human virus or an animal virus, but you don't necessarily think about one that may jump to your pet. If you're sitting at home or lying at home and and you're sick and you've got the hot water bottle and you're trying to drink fluids and those sorts of things, you're not looking over at Rover lying on the couch going, hey, I hope you don't get this, but how common is that kind of a thing? Oh, it's pretty uncommon. So most of, you know, we have dog viruses and cat viruses and whatever viruses and, pe- and human viruses, and most of those are specific to that animal species. Some of them can be fairly broad, rabies virus. So rabies can infect any mammal uh, versus some that just infect their host. And then there are some that can go back and forth a little bit. Even influenza, our flu, uh, human flu can be passed to dogs and cats and things like ferrets. It, it's quite uncommon. But there is a chance if you're sitting at home feeling miserable because you've got influenza, you could pass that on to your dog. Now, the dog's not the normal host for it. It's not their flu, so they might get sick but then not pass it on any further. But we do get things that can go back and forth uh, probably more often than we realize, and most often it doesn't cause a problem. We're talking with Dr. Scott Weiss of the Ontario Veterinary College, kind of looking at viruses in animals. Sure, COVID-19, but as Dr. Weiss points out, there's still a lot more to know about what's going on there. And it's difficult to know, you know, whether animals could become infected, whether it's, it's a case of uh, they, could, they could become gravely ill. Uh, right now, we're not seeing any other reports other than that one dog, right? Yeah, so far we haven't seen anything else. Now, the question we have is, have we had a lot of animals tested and they've been negative, or has there not been a lot of testing? Because this is an emerging issue, there's not been a lot of time to test animals. And places where there's a lot of disease, that's more more likely to see spillover to animals. But if all the testing is being done on people because that's the big need, then there may not have been a lot of investigation. So it's still pretty early. We don't know whether this is a really, really rare outcome in that dog or whether it's something that's more common and we just need to understand. With a dog or a cat, it seems we're worried about very serious things, sure. Uh, we're worried about injury. We're worried about things like worms or you would hear distemper or in a cat, feline rabies or, or you know, feline leukemia or something like that. But overall, should we be monitoring our pets for when they aren't feeling well? Well, it's, most, most disease we get in animals is just an animal disease, just like most of our disease is just a human disease. But things do move back and forth, and, and they probably move back and forth more often than we realize. And it's not a matter of you sitting on the couch looking at your cat trying to figure out how it's going to kill you. It's just being aware that, you know, there's certain things you can spread to your cat and certain things your cat can spread to you. And it's being aware of that. Sometimes it's as simple as making sure your physician knows that you own a dog or a cat or a rat or whatever it is. Um, most of the time that's not going to be relevant information, but sometimes it will be. So if, if your dog is sick and you get the same signs, then it's important for your physician to understand that, okay, maybe that's just a coincidence, but maybe there's something that can go between the two of you. So there's nothing specific we do in a lot of situations besides the things we say normally, like wash your hands, stay away from sick individuals. If you're sick, don't let the dog lick your face. If your dog is sick, don't let it lick your face. Really basic things like that, just to reduce the risks um, that might be there day to day. I don't know if we've ever heard, hey, I, I took the day off yesterday. I had to take my dog to the vet. He's got the flu. But is that a thing that you wind up seeing? Well, we, we certainly see do- dogs can get 
various diseases, right? And, and most of them are dog diseases. Dogs can get flu. There is a dog flu. It's one that we found in Canada a couple of years ago. It was introduced from Asia, and we were able to get rid of it. But we were paying a lot of attention to it because we didn't want to see a dog flu here and a human flu here and have those two flus get together and make a new human flu. So, you know, most people don't really think about, okay, my dog's sick, so I need to rush it off to the vet to figure out if I'm going to get sick from it, because, you know, usually that's not going to happen. But it's just to raise some awareness that, you know, if your animal's sick and you're sick, um, we just want to ask the question, is there a link there? If your animal's sick, just do a little bit extra hygiene around it, just like if your kid is sick, wash your hands a little bit more around them to reduce the risk of them passing something to you. Well, Dr. Weiss, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks. Have a good day. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.